Welcome to Discuss Detroit, where we have conversations with small business owners, community leaders, and Detroit residents about the city that we love. To watch video of these conversations, visit thecityinstitute.com slash discuss Detroit or follow City Institute on YouTube. Now for today's show. Today's guest is one of my favorite people in Detroit, Lauren Hood, founder and director of the Institute for Afro-Urbanism. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Jeanette. Hey, Lolo. <laughs> hey, Net Net. <laughs> we go back. We go back a little ways. To, that was uh, Those nicknames came from like a bar, drunken night in Chicago, if I recall. Vaguely. Yep. That tracks for me as well. Yep. <laughs> Probably like, oof like 15, 16, 2000, I don't even know. When were you in Chicago? <laughs> oh, dang. Back? It would have been like, oh, eight. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so on that note, that's a great, uh, great way to start. You know, I always ask people for their origin story. So what is, what's the Lauren Hood origin story? Where'd you come from? Where'd you, where were you born? Where raised? Mm -hmm. Were your formative years? <laughs> Uh, born at Henry Ford Hospital, um, March 5th, 1972. I have a milestone birthday coming up in about three days. Happy um, early birthday. Thank you. It's a thing. Um, and, you know, raised on the northwest side of Detroit. So my parents bought their house. <laughs> um the corner of Pinehurst and Margarita, a couple blocks away from Northwest Activity Center in 1969 and lived there until 2013. So I felt very privileged to have um, that as my permanent resident. So even as I moved around the city and moved to other cities, I always felt like I had the Northwest side to come back to. Like even when I lived in other places, I never changed the address on my driver's license. So I felt very rooted in in the address at 18600 Pinehurst. Um, so I'm of the Northwest side. However, I feel like a lot of the experiences that shaped me came from school. So although I grew up in this all black, middle class, working class neighborhood, I got shipped out to private school in the Burbs where there was um, you know, a very small handful of black kids. So a lot of my formative years were spent like bouncing between these two worlds an all-black like home life and then a multicultural school life and I think um, I always say that kind of set me up for doing the kind of work I do now which is like you know acting as a, a liaison between these two groups of folks being able to speak a couple different languages if that makes sense yeah absolutely so then when did you leave Detroit for the first time um the year 2000 i lived in chicago um what took me to chicago in particular i just wanted to have a different kind of experience i think i was going through a i'm too big for this place kind of vibe i was like detroit can't hold me i need a bigger city um but i didn't want to i well actually i'd done an internship in new york and i knew new york wasn't it so i was like what's a nice you know new york light so i was like let me try chicago Chicago for a little bit. So I lived in Chicago for about four years. Um, but then I think what brought me back home was I started to pay attention to the changes that were happening in the city and noticing that, you know, it didn't seem like a lot of native Detroiters were at the helm 
So I wanted to come back home and see how I could, um, you know, get engaged in what was going on. And then I know part of that journey was uh, the master's in community development, right? Mm -hmm. At UDM. For sure. So I actually started out in an MBA program. I'd always had a vision for running my own business or what I thought that meant. Um, I always wanted my own venue where I could create experiences for people. And I was like, oh, yeah, you get an MBA to like run your own business. But actually, like an MBA program in Michigan is more like how to be middle management at GM. So like <laughs> everybody in my classes were like, you know, would show up in their suits. Um, and yeah, it just wasn't what I was looking for. It didn't feel very liberated. It was very much like how to fit yourself into a giant corporate structure. And I was like, ooh, I don't want to be a cog. Um, so in one of my classes, though, there was this woman who was like, you know, there's a community development master's program. I think that is more your speed. I was like, let me try that out. Um, so I always give props to my friend Robin, who like introduced me to this whole new world of possibility. So I got in that program and yeah, totally like got my life, as the kids say. Yeah. And what that was around. So because you somewhere in that time frame, I think, is when you did your stint working for us when we were called Inside Detroit. Yeah. Don't know. We've been around 16 years. So we launched in 2006 as Inside Detroit and then brand change in collaboration with Dehive and then Detroit Experience Factory. Now we're expanding even more with uh, the City Institute. And I just love having a uh, touch points in different people's lives where like so many people have connected through our organization over the years uh, and I'm proud I get to you know, <laughs> Lauren worked for us for just a little bit during that uh, kind of discovery phase probably right around the sure did yeah I remember I was doing like double duty at the time so I was working for you and also working in economic development at the city of Highland Park oh. and just like having those experiences at the same time was interesting yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. well and i know we were like oh can you help? you know we really need someone to help with the office stuff <laughs> which mm -hmm. is definitely not like your the best use of your <laughs> not saying you can't do it but i mean but yeah you don't know that until you try it set, you know yeah but yeah you mm -hmm. don't know like i did you know when college i ended up like doing stuff like for the college radio and then i had an internship and it happened to be public relations and then all of a sudden i had all this like pr stuff I was like, but I don't want to do that, you know, but you yeah. don't know it until you kind of try it a little bit, right? And there's like a point in one's career where you can start to, you know, negotiate what your position is. Like at the time, I didn't feel like I had enough experience to be like, yeah, I'm not doing that stuff, you know? Um, but now I can, I, I get to pick whether or not I work in my genius zone. Like I know what my skill set is and I know what it isn't. So whenever people are like bringing me opportunities, I'm like, mm, that's not going to work for me. What about this? And if they can't fit into, you know, the way I've described and positioned my work, I can't do it. And mostly right now, I just want to do work that is self-driven. Like I've done enough stuff like fulfilling other people's visions. Um, you know, I'm ready to graduate. It's my time. So the work I do now is mostly self-directed. And you deserve it. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things is knowing your skill sets and knowing what they're not and being okay with that. Like. It's, totally. you know, people all say like, oh, I'm really bad at design or spatial stuff. You know, and people are like, oh, no, you're, and I'm like, I'm not saying that to you say like, oh, woe is me. It's just a, a fact. And so then I can, it frees me actually to not yeah. try to devote my time to like be better at something that is not mm -hmm. my, 
I, I don't yeah. need to be good at operations. Yeah. I, I have people for that. Yeah. That, <laughs> that are really good at it and passionate about it. Huge lessons learned over the years. Too. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. So speaking of where you are now, uh, the Institute for Afro, Afro-Urbanism, founder and director, uh, tell us kind of the how that came to be. I think it probably is similar to like that you wanted to do what you what you want to do and making it happen, which is, I think, one of your skill sets uh, for sure, <laughs> just making stuff happen. I think it um, emerged from having been a part of um, all of these institutional processes for, for planning and developing um, neighborhoods and doing projects in Detroit and realizing that you know, culture was never a part of the conversation. Um, or when we would mention black, it would be in the context of people who need like subsidies and support and help. It never came from a place of recognizing that we have everything we need. There's just a system that imposes barriers upon us that don't let us thrive. Um, and also recognizing that most of the people that were leading this work were like white folks that were either from the suburbs or like from out of state. And when you don't have anyone in a team context that understands the black lived experience, like designing and planning for black people, there's so much that gets left out. And I as like the person who was usually brought on to do engagement, but who also took on like cultural and historical context as part of my work. Um, It just um, like, it doesn't fit. Those teams usually led by architects and planners create a very small hole for what engagement is. And what it needs to be is something that's like guiding the entire process. But when you don't have the context for what a black lived experience is, but you're trying to plan for our communities, like, I don't know, you miss so many things. And yeah, so the Institute emerged as a way to center the black lived experience when planning and developing in black communities. Pretty straightforward. And it seems like, like why would you need to do that? It seems elementary that you would like lead with the culture and lead with the lived experience of the people. But it's something that I have seen that we just don't do. Absolutely. Or don't do well. Right. I mean, for all those reasons that you mentioned, because the people normally leading don't have that that lived experience, right? Yeah, it's considered that their lived experience is just the the quintessential lived experience of everyone and black folks and white folks, and particularly in, in the racialized America we live in today are having really different experiences. Well, and then even within the black community as well, obviously it's not, you know, like it's not just monolithic, yeah. right? Like, Correct. And I think, um, part the segregation in our region. And that's why, I, you know, I'd love your thoughts on, you know, when you went to Chicago, what was some of the similarities and differences? You know, I think one of the things that being traveling is actually what helps you, if I believe, right, learn more about where you're from, actually, right? I think yeah. we're so, so often Detroiters, either we might not leave Detroit or we think, I've had people say, oh, this is only in Detroit. Like I had someone say, well, they don't have homeless people in Chicago. And it's like, well, you obviously <laughs> haven't been or being on the magnificent, going for a vacation or a weekend is not being in a city, any city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are similarities, but there are differences. Did you, as you've traveled, what are some of those, I mean, whether it's Chicago or other things? Like, 
Is the segregation, do you feel the segregation more here? Is on a map, it looks. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah. Um, so you feel it in Chicago, but I feel it more so in Detroit. And maybe it's because I'm super rooted here and I can, you know, see, see more clearly what's happening um, because I'm kind of connected to it. But I mean, there's segregation here even like yes, neighborhood to neighborhood, but like building to building in certain parts of the city. Um, even in spaces, I would argue that this co-working space I'm in right now, there's a black section and a white section. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's the, what the harm that our region has experienced due to like our unresolved racial trauma um, it's just really palpable to me. And I've had friends that come from other places who get here and are like, whoa, like this black white divide, they can like, you know, you can taste it when you get here. Um, it's just, it's deep. Yeah. We got some healing to do. Absolutely. And I mean, well, that's why we talk so much about the history and the context because help, helping people understand how we got here. And that's both, I mean, certainly I feel like black Detroiters know more about that history part. Obviously they've lived it in many cases, but like so many things that it wasn't talked about or there's misinformation or pieces of things out there. Well, let me so, tell you about that. So yeah. um, as we were discussing earlier, like I just came from the congregation. So that's a church like right at 12th and Claremont mm -hmm. where actually my parents got married in, but, um, my grandmother lived on Claremont like five houses off of that intersection. Um, and it only occurred to me like at the 50th anniversary mark where people were like, yes, and the origins of the uprising were 12th and Claremont. And I was like, whoa, that's where my grandma lived. And I was like, mom, like, were you there? Was grandma there like when the stuff happened? She's like, oh yeah. I'm like, how have we not had a discussion about this? Like in all the years, we didn't talk about that. Both my, my grandmothers lived there. My one grandmother was at 1996 Claremont, which is like five houses off the intersection. And my dad's mom was on Atkinson, which is like the next street over. And they were both there during the uprising. And never did I hear these stories growing up. Like, how is this possible? So I had to, you know, dig and pry. I'm like, so what happened? And what were you and dad doing? And what did that feel like? And did you see the tanks? And was it scary? The way my mom describes it, she's like, well, your father and I still had to go to work. I'm like, work was still happening? Like, it was my understanding that, like, you know, nobody was doing anything in the city except, like, you know, hankering down, trying to, you know, stay safe. But she's like, no, we still had to do things. Um, and it's really interesting. What I came to understand is I think it was um, a traumatic experience, yes, but maybe a little embarrassing because the, the way that I always understood it was that Black folks kind of went crazy one day and scared all the good white people and the jobs out to the suburbs was kind of what I grew up feeling about that time period. And it just made me wonder like, is there some shame associated with that? Cause you know, I've been calling it a riot forever until again, I wanna say at the 50th anniversary mark when we started having different kinds of conversations about it. And, and in asking myself like, why didn't my parents ever talk to me about it? I'm like, maybe there was some shame there. You know, there, there wasn't like this um, social political understanding that, you know, the uprising was a response to behavior on, you know, the part of the police 
city government. Like we could afford good houses, but they wouldn't let us live in them. We were qualified for good jobs, but we couldn't have them. So, the you know, Fair Housing Act didn't happen until 68. I mean, it was literally yeah. illegal. Like the federal government still, well, you know, was you couldn't get a home loan in America if you were black. I mean, in, in 1967. Yeah. I mean, I, so it just makes me wonder yeah. if if the reason it didn't get talked about in my household when my my parents were right at the epicenter um, is because there's some some shame that hasn't been resolved around what happened then. And that makes sense too, because the narrative, the larger regional narrative was that, you know, was obviously the media was all white at the time or, you know, vast majority, right? And that's something that obviously we all talked about and worked on on the Detroit 67 project uh, and, you know, which I think was amazing uh, and super necessary, the whole idea of looking back to move forward. And obviously our good friend Marlo, um, who we miss dearly, it was instrumental in making sure those conversations happened and right and taking it outside of the museum. But as I've as we've been talking with people and doing more around um, those those historic contexts that uh, I have heard from both black and white that there's just these large pieces that have not been or not realizing the connection to things that mm -hmm. everything's connected, right? Whether it's from, we had slavery in Detroit that wasn't talked about, right? Until mm -hmm. Dr. Miles really wrote that book. Well, I think, and that's part of the, the problem. Derman always likes to say we have collective amnesia, um, but I think there's also something to be said for having a critical consciousness about these things. There's one thing to like know the history, but it's like another thing to understand how the implications are manifest in what we see today. Yes. Lots of people like to be like, oh my God, redlining was so horrible. Oh, Detroit had slaves, how, how terrible. All, all of these ways that black folks were harmed, mm, that's too bad. But they don't connect it to the manifestation of the way the city looks today. People 74, for some reason can't do that. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of like why, what, when I'm talking about connecting the dots and the context is about how it impacts us today so that you people, you know, you can't, I don't think you can also work towards a solution if you don't understand how it happened in the first place. And, and most of the people leading Right. are leading these processes so, yeah. of change in the city do not have that context nor the critical consciousness to understand how it's connected to what's happening today like 74 percent of redlined areas are low income today in america mm -hmm. like that is i mean anyway so i know we can talk about data and all that i mean we did i was and it's been a learning journey for me as well and we uh, did our, our redlining uh, racism and segregation presentation for the Michigan Chronicle, uh, Michigan Chronicle, the uh, Michigan Democratic Black Caucus. And I was like really nervous about it. I was like, you guys know this stuff? Like, why you want, I mean, um, but you know, they were like, you weave the, these pieces together make and help us tell that story. You're helping us build the case for reparations. That's what mm -hmm. all of these things that we like 67 and it's interesting wasn't in a too, silo. You know? Yes, it's interesting too that more people now want to understand the racialized history of the city. Like for you, have you always done like the the racial segregation? It's always been part of the every every tour, you know, like because that you can't oh, look at this cool new restaurant and that was an abandoned mm -hmm. building. Why was it abandoned, right? So we always, like every tour would talk about the Burwood Wall and in, in facts and like make, and 
We talk about touch on briefly on 67. But now you can have a whole tour just yes. on that. Yeah. yeah. And well, with virtual too, we can like before it would also be an all day thing, you know, and Jaman mm -hmm. and I partnered on during 67 50th anniversary on these tours because the Burwood wall is leads to what happened in 67, the destruction of, but it's all leads to what 67, what happened mm -hmm. then. Uh, and but to go from OC and Sweet House on the east side to the Burwood Wall, back to Black Bottom, back to 12th and Claremont on a, you know, on a person is absolutely doable, but it takes all day. And so yes. now with virtual, it just was became that tool that in an hour and a half, we can give this very quick overview. But then because it's virtual too, we, we can have links here to learn. This is only scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. Here's all these resources. Go talk to Jaman some more. Go talk to yeah. this, read this book. Have you Go found that organizations are more interested now than they were like in a pre-Floyd world? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think also the way, yeah, like, I mean, that is talking about my skill set. I realize is that data nerd who can communicate like that overlap where it isn't just a dry history, but it's, you know, it's how it's the emotion of what happened, but also how it still impacts us today. But then also what are people doing like that, you know, to move us forward? And you're a great example of that. So I, I mean, um, it, speaking of reparations, I think, are you on, aren't you on the, the new reparations task force or talk or not on the task force? I am, I am on a steering committee. Okay. So there's a small group of us that have been working with, um, council president Sheffield and her people to create a process by which this task force will be selected. So we work together to draft the Got first it. resolution, um, work together also with Keith Williams from the Michigan democratic black yeah. caucus to, draft and pass the resolution to establish a task force. So no one's on it yet, <laughs> but yes, I'm engaged in helping them set up that process. And what, I mean, that's, I mean, a new, a new not a new concept, obviously by any means, um, but more people are willing to have that conversation, you think? They are, people, right? and for like, me, yeah. For me, it was a leveling up. I used to always want to talk about equitable development, but I don't even know what that means. What does equity look like? People like to throw around that word. I don't even use it anymore because I, I can't define it for you. So if I can't define it, why am I talking about it? But I know what reparations is. So to me, reparations is a three-part process. Um, it's an acknowledgement that some harm was done, which I really think is the first step in black folks thriving. So that shame I talked about earlier the federal government or even local government said, black people, the way your neighborhood looks today is not your fault. We did this to you and we apologize. Like that would allow us to let go of all that shame we've been carrying for decades. And I think, um, you know, we can, we can start to thrive on our own accord. There are all these programs and subsidies that are offered. And yes, people need direct services like today but I, I assure you that if you if people could let go of that shame and that pain, like we could thrive on our own accord. Um, so three parts, it's um, sorry we did this to y'all. The second is, um, you know, some sort of compensation. But in my mind, the compensation doesn't have to be like a check or a free house. It could be a free education. It could be free mental health care. Um, it could look a lot of different ways, but you have to talk to people to figure out the way 
that they wish to be made whole. I think a problem that we have is institutionally, we like to figure out, oh, this is what people need. Like, no, <laughs> you can't imagine what people need, but people know what they need. But you have to have those conversations and a process that allows folks who have been impacted to participate in determining what the, the compensation is gonna look like. So the acknowledgement, the compensation, and then a shift in policy to ensure that we don't do it again. So you have to establish a new set of like governing norms that make sure that the harm does not happen again. It's those three things that have to happen. That, that, that's a really, I mean, that great job on, I mean, I'm sure you guys have worked on that because that is very, those are, I mean, those are impactful, measurable, understandable and imperative, you know, like, absolutely. I think, I mean, that, that the last one about making sure things don't happen again is also like, so important right because we're doing things again right whether it's disenfranchising voters we're, right now right. we're in a period of urban renewal just like we were in the 40s 50s 60s right. it's the and, same thing it and just when i has tell people words. about it like kobo wasn't destroying this like just saying i mean he was like saying this is progress right and like and the narrative is very similar to to today right and understanding those coalition uh, correlations is is why we talk about it right is one of the the many reasons i mean but also even what redlining look like today you know zoning right in the suburbs mm -hmm. especially you know like is today's version of redlining how can somebody i mean um and helping people again i think people are more interested in knowing um i should say white people are more interested than they have been uh which is part of the reason we started it was like after george floyd a lot of people just were like what <laughs> racism you know kind of and you know and i guess i guess it's better late than never um mm -hmm. right i don't know i mean i guess right but uh but that but that's you know where helping people see that is and i've seen people going wow i never knew and i, and I, I can see a little bit of movement i mean it's certainly it's not what is necessary it, but it's it does feel like a beginning um and even having you know building up to the task force Mm -hmm. uh, do you, but at the same time, obviously, there's, I mean, it's a complicated and there's a lot of stuff out it's, there. In my mind, also, the reparations process needs to go on in perpetuity until racism no longer exists and the, the whole of humanity is some shade of beige. <laughs> um, that's how long the process needs to last. You know, there will always be some racialized harm to account for. Um, so I don't think, yeah, that process just can't look at, at harms. Yeah, it can't just look backwards. There's harm presently and into the future. And we need to establish, yeah, some somebody that will address those issues as they continue to occur. What's the, so what's the timeline for the task force? And do they? Has not been established. Yeah. So the first um, public meeting that we had last week was to talk about that, was to talk about like term limits, um, criteria for people to be on the task force, uh, the selection process, uh, the steering committee group didn't want to be prescriptive and how any of that was set up. So we even took, you know, those things in front of the public for a discussion. Great. And how does that tie in? I mean, you're with the Institute for Afro-Urbanism and you're in the work that well, I, I said, launching yeah. that right that's a into newer newer well i've been working on it for let me see maybe mid 2020 yeah 
but um, pandemic pandemic project. Yep. And I was very intentional about how the word got out. So the University of Detroit Mercy is the fiduciary for the first two grants. And, you know, their PR department wrote a press release, but it was really university heavy. And a lot of the work that I'm doing needs to be demonstrating that a black woman who is a native Detroiter can get financial support for a grassroots um, for a grassroots initiative to address issues in a black centered way. Um, I like to think of my work as like a permission slip. So all the all the little black kids in Detroit who are planning out their futures, thinking about what they can do, can look at this institute and be like, oh, I can have my own initiative and people will support it. Like, yes, that's an option for you. But if the story comes out that like, oh, this university got money to, to like help an alumni do a thing, like that's not the real story. Like I went out with my concept and raised the money through my own relationships with philanthropy based on previous work that I did. <laughs> like that needs to be the story so that other little black kids know it's a possibility. Um, and I also think, like I know you want to talk a little about the France trip, like everything that the, the Institute does is to serve as a permission slip for other black folks to be like, yeah, you can get this, you can do this. Yeah. So that was what I said. So what so yeah. it started and then what are some of the things I know one of those was taking an amazing group of people to uh, to Paris. Yeah. Well, in thinking about like what is the ethos of the Institute, I really wanted to center the notion of black thriving. I think a lot of the work that we do in black communities, um, you know, it's deficit based. It's like poor, marginalized, disinvested underserved and i think when you use words like that people start to embody the behavior of people who are disenfranchised and underserved and i'm like okay i know from the law of attraction that whatever you put your energy into grows so if i keep saying underserved it's a lot of underservedness <laughs> that's gonna you know proliferate and i'm like well what do i want to grow well i want black thriving to grow so that's centered in all the work um so the first piece of work that the Institute is going to engage in is the Black Thriving Index. So it's a citywide qualitative study of the Black lived experience. And that really emerged from, you know, doing community engagement on all these projects where community voice doesn't get listened to. Like it's, um, we create platforms to receive it in a very superficial way but it doesn't really ever impact the outcome. So I'm like, After okay. Fact, it, or like, yeah, it's way too, it's way and too late it's in like, the game. Let's so, ask people what they think, yes. but then- So much it. has already been decided by the point we start asking people what they want and what they think. And it's also been my contention and experience that people who um, you know, haven't been in full possession of their imagination, when you, so much of your day is spent struggling to survive you don't have the proper agency to imagine your best future. Um, so Inner people need mindset, right? I mean, it's yeah, you just even yeah. in the nonprofit world, I would have that that you know, I'd be like, I'm totally so, so and I'm so don't have enough money, I don't have money. And then they'd you know, you'd have a session, they'd say, What would you do with you know, if you had a million dollars? And it's like, you can't even 
imagine you that. can't even get there like, because, pay yes. our bills like pay yes. you know, or so, hire a person well, yes a lot of the work of the institute is also helping people activate their wildest dreams so we're going to do a lot of work about um science fiction and afrofuturism to help expand people's imagination about what's possible um when you ingrid ask people LeFleur, have you, is that yeah, i love ingrid yeah of course of course she's, of, she did work with us a little too she uh, she's like in detroit but not really she's not where is she she's like, no, just all over, she's, I feel like. she's in africa last yeah. i talked to her she was in rwanda and planning to go to south africa i think so she's on the continent what i love about ingrid ingrid was like yeah detroit is too oppressive for me so that forced me to think about like wow a place that is 80 percent black is too oppressive for a black person like we got to address these things but um, I didn't finish about the Black Thriving Index. So Sorry. citywide qualitative analysis of Black lived experience, responding to the fact that in most of the cases where we're planning for Black communities, we're not really listening to people, or we do in a very superficial way, or we're asking questions that keep people rooted in the present versus having conversations about what our, you know, thriving as Black future should look like. Um, so what that looks like is hiring people of the community to have conversations with people they're already in relationship with. Um, I have before done door to doors as a graduate student. And even though I am black and a resident of Detroit, there's still this very um, outsider kind of um, approach to talking to people about what they want for their community. So I wanna eliminate any of that kind of feeling. Um, also understanding that people have been surveyed to death in this town. So I'm trying to think of what is the least extractive way to better understand what's inside people's heads. Um, and to me that came like, oh, you just pay people of the community to have conversations with people they already know, but not pay people like, um, you know, a stipend, like I'm giving people a whole salary um, and also some support in being able to have really good conversations, really generative conversations. Um, in addition to doing this research, these fellows will be engaged in a program where we study thriving black communities historically. So nowhere in my urban planning studies did we study like Idlewild or Black Bottom Paradise Valley or um, Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Like these are all things that I came to understand later on through my own research. But what would, how would it have expanded my imagination about Detroit if I had had black examples of prosperity beforehand. So we're, the fellows will get to learn that, you know, we're going to take some trips to places, hear from some, some speakers. Um, there will also be some ritual involved. I think that black folks connecting to our ancestral practices also um, just increases our capacity to you know, to love ourselves more and love our culture more. I think we're programmed to, to think that black is bad, even black folks. So what does it look like to explore these things that are, you know, things that our ancestors did? How does that connect us to our history um, and our culture? Let's see, what are the other principles connecting to ancestry? I also wanna give all of these fellows an ancestry.com membership because I found it um, a tremendous source of pride and it um, it strengthened my resolve in my work to know that what my ancestors did like I have a great grandfather who fought in the Civil War but I read an article that said he also 
um, worked as a conductor on the Underground Railroad toward the liberation of his people. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. So I think there is someone like that in everybody's lineage. And I want these fellows to find out like who in their ancestry, whose work are they carrying on? So like this program isn't just to like get this research. It's also to help, um, you know, foster a transformation in these people that will then in theory be contagious. So how can this idea of black thriving spread like a virus throughout the city? Amazing. And uh, when you define, because I, I think I've heard you talk about it before, like what is black thriving Mm. look like or what are the, the yeah I, I have a, a working definition I think it has three components so the first is agency like you need to understand your own capacity um, to impact your life a lot of people don't feel like they feel like life is happening to them versus having some control over it so if you are black and thriving you you're in full possession of your agency um, the next A is abundance, um, and that means fulfillment in all the areas. It's not just financially, it's like you have solid relationships, your work is rewarding, um, you take care of yourself. Um, I think that something I picked up from the activist community in Detroit is like, we wear like the working hard and the not having money is like a badge of honor, like I'm in this struggle too. But like, who are you helping if you're just signing up for struggle? Who is that for, you know? Um, so trying to, to, to counter that and being like, no, abundance is our birthright. Like it's okay to have. Um, and then the third A being audacity. And that is being able to show up 100% your full self in whatever setting you're in. Um, and I think a lot about peers and colleagues of mine who might have a good job title and make a lot of money, but the person they have to be every day in order to maintain that isn't really who they are. So I think that to me doesn't look like thriving. Like thriving is like you get to show up your whole black ass self in like whatever setting you're in and still be able to maintain. So what does it look like for black folks to show up you know, in just a really audacious way. <laughs> so if, you, if those three things are working for you, then you're black and thriving. <laughs> and in this one, it just speaks to the whole messed up system that it's audacity to just be yourself, right? Like, it is because like, we are so programmed to not do yeah, that from yeah. every direction. I was thinking recently about how maybe 10 years ago when I started wearing my hair natural, I got it from my mom, she's like, I don't know why you did that. And I was like, what? And she's like, well, you know, things are just gonna be harder for you. And I'm like, how are you telling me that, that like my natural appearance is gonna make things harder for me? You should be saying like, hey, going out there and get them, show them who you are. Like, <laughs> you know, but like even- She's from, not like, wrong. That's, you know, that's the, that's her, that's the experience, right? It, right. That's, but that's like, if it's, if, yeah. yes, if even within my own black, you know, immediate family are these messages of like, suppress your cultural nature you know like what does it look like to to counter all that yeah and that was part of the trip to paris could you just talk a oh little? yeah that was one so of that the feeds into the black thriving index i wanted to take black folks that i knew who were thriving and again let them serve as like a permission slip for 
like taking time off, celebrating your culture, um, you know, centering the black lived experience. Like I have been a part of cohorts that have gone places and, you know, mostly white groups with a couple of black folks where we just couldn't talk about race at all. Like I'll get specific. So I think thinking back to, um, I went on a trip to Copenhagen with the Knight Foundation. So they took a bunch of people from all over the country that were leading different initiatives to go experience like public life in Copenhagen. And like the story we got was, um, you know, they have a really high quality of life. Whenever you're measuring like well-being, Scandinavia is always top of the charts. But what didn't get discussed, you know, we talked to elected officials, we talked to, to residents, like their equivalent of like nonprofit leadership, but no one addressed the idea of racial difference. So the black folks in the group, like after all the day's presentations, we were having our own conversation, like why didn't they talk about race at all? It's really interesting. This is a very homogenous community and we're not really talking about, you know, we can't apply any of this stuff because in America, it's very different. Um, I mean, they have so to have my, minor, yeah. you know, or, or they have a lot. They have immigrants, but they yeah. didn't. They, they yeah, weren't they considered in any of these presentations. Yeah. You know, that like wasn't addressed at all. So for those of us that you know live in a state of difference, we were like, man, how how is that not part of the conversation? So I was like, what if that was the center of a conversation? I'm going to take an all-black group to a place where we exist in you know smaller numbers. And, and center that part of the experience in the conversation. What does it look like to do that? Um, and what does it look like to go there um, in the name of celebrating one of our own? So we went around the induction of Josephine Baker into the Pantheon. Um, you know, and the big question for me was like, why is a place like France putting this black American entertainer into this, you know, this vault with all of their war heroes and other luminaries? So it was really around trying to understand that, but also just us being able to center our experience in the conversation in a way that we can't even hear, you know? Um, uh, lots of people in power get very uncomfortable when you center the black lived experience, even in a place that's 80% black. So I was like, okay, let's take everybody out of their hustle mode. Like you have to set aside like all of your meetings and all of your deadlines and everything that that you have to do, you're gonna leave that at home. <laughs> and then we're gonna go have this really black centered experience in this other place and just kind of, you know, see what happens. And I also wanted them to like, you know, share the pictures and share the experience. Again, it's like a permission slip for others to do that. And like, I heard a bit of feedback, like I talked to um, Kendall Waterman, who is Kaylin, you know, Kaylin, hey, she's yeah. the one for you too. Yeah. So Kendall though, is yeah. like um, doing some narration for my website. And she's like, Lauren, you know, when I saw those pictures that my sister posted of that trip, I was like, man, I should be doing that. I wanna go have a cultural experience. I wanna go see what it's like to, to center the black lived experience for a minute. Um, and that's exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You know? Amazing. And what was the, like, Okay. Well, we can talk about, there's so much stuff to talk about. We'll have to have you, have you on again because, uh, and then we'll also continue this uh, over dinner or wine sometime too. Um, but, uh, but I always, my always final question is, you know, what's the call to action? It could be little like follow this on this, or it can be world peace. But if people mm. listening to this or watching this, 
want, you know, are inspired to take action, uh, what, what would you love to see them do? Hmm, that's a good question. Usually I do come prepared with a call to action. I really, um, I consider my work like changing hearts and mind space, which is really hard to measure, right? <laughs> like yes. you're a real estate developer, like there was no building, now there's a building. You can be I like, I did you. that. Yeah, but like you if you're one. trying to <laughs> activate a different kind of consciousness in people, like it's hard to measure. But I will say, like I would like people to, you know, stew on the concept of black thriving. If you are a nonprofit leader, if you work in philanthropy, if you're anyone who has anywhere in your mission, the idea of helping black people, like go over your work with a fine tooth comb and try to understand like, in what ways does it contribute to black people thriving? Like, are you operating from a place where you understand we have everything we need internally and it just needs to be set free? Or are you operating from a place like we're a hot mess of people who need assistance? Like each of those ethoses, <laughs> ethi, each of those ethoses like have a different set of, you know, work that comes with it. And I, I would just hope that people are operating from a place like we have everything we need within instead of like, you know, you need my help. So just, you know, I would like people to just um, meditate for a moment on the concept of black thriving and think about like, is your work really doing that? If you're one of those people that's saying the thing, like, is your work really centering us thriving? Awesome. And if, is there a ways, a website or social media for the Institute mm -hmm. or for yourself that you want to <laughs> share? So actually this weekend as part of my um, half century birthday celebration, we'll be launching all the socials. So there is an Insta, which is Afro-urbanism. Um, there's a Facebook page, which is Afro-urbanism, Facebook backslash Afro-urbanism. And there's a website, afrourbanism.com. So it's not hard to remember, just, you know, Afro-urbanism on all the things. But yes, we'll be launching as of March 5th, all those platforms. But right now there is a mailing list up where you can sign up on the website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren, for taking the time. And thank you all, the, for all of you for joining us today. A lot to think about, a uh, lot to stew on. And uh, we hope to hear you, see you again uh, on our next Discuss Detroit episode. Of course, follow us on uh, the City Institute, on uh, social media and on YouTube to first other videos. And, you know, like and rate and I don't know, I'm not really into all that stuff yet, but I'm sure that's <laughs> what you're supposed to do, right? Uh, <laughs> subscribe. Then, yeah, subscribe, like, subscribe, rate all those things. Uh, but hopefully this and our other conversations are helping you uh, feel more connected to what's going on in Detroit. And thanks so much, everybody.